I thought, you know, everyone has their own biases, whether or not they choose to admit it, right? You either have a relationship to mental health or you have no relationship. And that relationship is shaped by the media or is shaped by a stereotype or is not shaped at all. And in my case, I thought if I could walk someone through what it was like to watch someone crying uncontrollably and not have any power to help them, it might help people have more compassion and start to see how hard life can be for someone who struggles um, and and not be so quick to judge or have, you know, false understanding of, of what mental illness looks like. That's Michelle Dickinson, and I'm Brian Felchuk. This is Do A Day. You'll hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned. I'm your host, Brian Falchuk. I know we can all overcome and achieve because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do A Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Hey, day doers, welcome back for another episode of Do A Day. My guest today is Michelle Dickinson. She's a passionate mental health advocate, a TEDx speaker, and a published author of a memoir, called Breaking Into My Life. And we're obviously going to talk about that memoir quite a bit because that is her story and that's what led to the work that she does today around mental health and around supporting people with it to beat down that stigma so that we can get the help and support and be the help and support that we need in this society. It was all born from Michelle's experience growing up with a loving but bipolar mother and how that defined her childhood her relationship with her parents, her relationship with herself, her responsibilities as a child, the stability or lack of stability, and so obviously pretty far-ranging and major impact on her life and who she is. Uh, She went on to have this career, and then uh, as that was ending, she was getting divorced. It opened up a whole new path for her around mental health, and it's what she's been doing in that space as a result of her backstory that forms the basis for today's conversation. Really important one. I know I've had a few mental health stories in this show, and that's because it's pervasive. We all know people, or perhaps ourselves, are in a place where this is very real for us. The stigma is very real. It's something we need to address. We need to call out. We need to support and we need to understand better. And so that's why this is one of those important episodes for me, because I think it applies to everyone universally, whether you realize it or not. So with that, let's jump in with Michelle Dickinson. Michelle Dickinson, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. This is a, this is a fun one for me, because the way that you discovered the show and, and learned about what I was doing is through my friend Michael Levitt and Breakfast Leadership, and hearing I guess hearing me on his show um, I never know because he was also on mine. And so it's like, yeah, which way that it all came about. But um, Michael's an awesome guy. And anyone who isn't what Michael's doing, that's like right off the bat. I know that your quality. So I was very intrigued to learn more <laughs> about you. Um, yeah. And have awesome. you on the show today. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So give us a little high level of your your today. And then obviously, as with every guest, there's a whole story behind why today is what it is. Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll back into that, but give us the overview of who you are and what you're up to these days. Sure, sure. I am a very passionate mental health advocate. 
Um, I'm out to cause change and create more love and compassion in the world for people who suffer with a mental illness, for those who care for those who suffer, and just in general, um, really help there be compassionate work environments, compassionate communities, um, more education and more knowledge around mental illness and what that looks like and how people can start to relate to it more um, in a more healthy way and, and really relate to the brain as just being another organ and not being this thing that we all stigmatize and we don't talk about. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that stigma is still very strong. There's been a lot of pro uh, progress. There's been a lot of awareness and compassion and there's still plenty of stigma and plenty of fear of being open about these things, whether it's, um, depression, bipolar, or suicide, you know, suicidal thoughts, what have you. Yeah. There's always that first step is really, really hard. We don't know how people are going to respond. Yeah. We're all in different contexts. You know, does, does the job understand? Does the spouse understand? Does the military understand your parent, whoever it is, are you going to yeah. get made fun of? Right. Uh, yeah. It's right. still, still extremely scary today, despite being better than what it was maybe 20 years ago or 40 years ago or whatever. Still very hard. Yeah. I mean, I think we've made a lot of progress. I think there's a lot of great things going on. I look around my own community and we have a coalition for mental health that's emerged out of the mayor's office. That gets me so excited because it, what it means is we're going to start talking more openly in my own community. I look at what companies are doing. There are some companies that are really innovative and they're really committed to um, inclusion of people of all kinds of disability, and that includes invisible disability. Mm. So, and then we have celebrities, right, openly sharing and being vulnerable and saying, "Hey, this took me out of the game, yeah. and I'm de and I'm dealing with it, and I'm going to be okay." So yeah. that gives us all hope. So yeah, the music space seems to be yes. one with a lot, and like some of the greatest songwriters also have some of the you know the toughest struggles with this. Yeah. Um. So tell us a little bit about why that is what you do. Mm -hmm. Not a little bit. Tell us, you know, <laughs> quite a bit because it's, you it's know, quite a story. You know, it's it's interesting. I never set out to be a mental health advocate. I was um, committed to just, you know, doing doing um, getting a good job and and having a great career. And then I found myself um, giving a TED talk <laughs> like you um, about my experience growing up with my mom. I had been nominated uh, to give a TED talk at my company about what that experience was like loving and caring for my bipolar mother. And so I told the story on the stage and it was met with such love and compassion and honestly created a pathway for other people to talk about their situations or their relationship to mental illness that it kind of pulled me into the direction of, okay, if I can make a difference and I could cause open dialogue about this uncomfortable topic through a TED talk, like what could I do with a book? Mm -hmm. So that got me really connected to wanting to write a memoir that visually um, and was very honest and authentic about the experience of loving and how hard it was to care for someone with a mental illness and, uh, you know, humanize it. So I wrote it over a four year period and um, shared the book in the beginning of 18. And it gave me like almost um, a calling card to be the one to go first and talk about mental illness and what that was like. So I, there's a few, few things you've said in relation to the book um, that not, not here, but that I've heard you say about it around wanting to take the reader through that life, through that journey, which 
I, to me is like that's such an important way to tell this story because it's not everyone relates to it or they may relate to it and don't realize it. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. getting people to live a bit in your shoes and walk through that journey with you, I think is really powerful for kind of breaking more freedom into the space. Right. Exactly. And, you know, and that was, I thought, you know, everyone has their own biases, whether or not they choose to admit it, right? Mm -hmm. You either have a relationship to mental health or you have no relationship. And that relationship is shaped by the media or is shaped by a stereotype or is not shaped at all. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I thought if I could walk someone through what it was like to watch someone crying uncontrollably and not have any power to help them. Mm. It might help people have more compassion and start to see how hard life can be for someone who struggles um, and, and not be so quick to judge or have, you know, false understanding of, of what mental illness looks like. Yeah. I'm I'm curious if you would go into some of those stories, you know, for people mm-hmm. who haven't read the book to understand a taste of what what it can be like. And it's not just someone you care about when it's a parent or your child or your spouse. There's a different level of can or your sibling, actually. And, you know, that can mm-hmm. define your family dynamic in a really different way. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I talk about a lot of experiences. Um, my mom was was physically, emotionally, and, um, verbally abusive to me Mm. because of her illness. She had bipolar disorder. She had highs, manic highs where she was happy and on top of the world. And then she had very, very low depressing moments where she was crying uncontrollably. She was nervous. She was, um, you know, needed to be hospitalized, needed to be taken to a mental hospital several times throughout my childhood. And so like one of the examples that I share um, in my in a, in a recent TED talk that I gave or, or talk was how hard it was to watch her cry for hours and like not be able to to do anything about it. It wasn't like um, she needed a, it wasn't like she needed a Band-Aid or it wasn't like she needed something. It was like, there was nothing you could do to console her. And as a little girl, I just remember sitting there and looking at her and and her face and just seeing the tears like streaming down her face and not having the ability to stop that pain that was coming from within her. That was like the hardest experience because I felt so paralyzed and powerless, Mm. you know? Do you find in other I should say thank you, first of all, that to share that, because that, that's incredibly hard to live through. Um, mm-hmm. And you mentioned through your childhood, so I'm guessing you've, you've seen these things since early memories. So it's not like you were a young adult and had, no. you know, already worked through your own sense of self and stability and strength. Um, do you find that informing how you face other difficult situations? Like this need to fix, but not being able to. Totally. I mean, totally. It's very reflective of what that powerless feeling was, right? It like shows up for me again and again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but then I also think it serves me because I have like 
an incredible empathy and an incredible compassion. Like I, I coach a few different people and I got on a coaching call and a zoom call and I saw this like depressed pain in this woman's eyes. And I was just like, Whoa, we're not going into anything until I talk to you about how you're feeling. Cause I can, I can feel it. I can see it in your eyes that you're depressed. Like, yeah. so I think that it serves me in that I have an ability to connect with people and really see their pain because I, it's so familiar to what my mother's look like. Yeah. Um, but then I have to balance that, right? Because it's very easy to get sucked into it as a caregiver and mm. want to want to try to fix what you can. Yeah, that's very true. So when when was the earliest time that you remember one of these episodes? I mean, aside from the day to day, which which is definitely not easy either. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of these more extreme periods and was your was your dad in the situation? Was, were you alone? Yeah, my dad was um, my dad was there. I think I, I want to say I was around four or five years old when she first started acting strange, I guess, where she would be incredibly high and happy. And then the next minute she would be very angry. And then the next minute she'd be very mad or very sad. You know, it would go like through this roller coaster. Yeah. <clears throat> um, my dad was there. My dad uh, was the you know, primary breadwinner. My mom did not work. So he was really under a lot of pressure to make sure that he was working and, you know, doing everything he needed to, to keep the house going. Um, and so I also think he had his own challenges with growing up with an alcoholic mother that, you know, he was dealing with, but he was, he was present to it to an extent, but not very, um, didn't really, um, add the additional support in my mother's absence, mm -hmm. right? Cause didn't really know what to do, you know, with that. He still had his own biases around mental illness. He like, he would yell at her and say, snap out of it, just snap yeah. out of it. Yeah. And like, we all know that doesn't work for someone who's dealing with a mental illness. Yeah. I always picture that scene. I mean, it's not funny, but the scene in airplane where like the whole airplane is lining up to smack this woman who's hysterical. And it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, like, actually, I mean, as much as they're making a joke out of it, that is yeah. kind of the mentality for a lot of people for a long yeah. time. Yeah. And when you're in the throes of bearing witness to that and being frustrated with it, you, some people will go to those places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, it's a very, it's a powerless situation. If you don't understand mental illness and you don't know how to help someone, yeah. it's very easy to default and just get angry and scare them. And yeah. like my dad, my dad, used a lot of scare tactics to try to get her to snap out of it. But that like never really happened. Yeah. It's not, she's not choosing any of that. No. Um, when, when you mentioned that four to five, had she received a diagnosis already or was it, it was unknown for a while? Yeah. I think she had probably had her first official nervous breakdown when I was a little bit older. Um, but she got very controlling and I write about this in the book. Like there was like the controlling mom there was the manic mom. There's different versions of my mom that showed up for me in my childhood. And the controlling mom was the first phase where everything needed to be controlled and we had to be perfectly good little, you know, organized. Everything had to be, you know, perfect. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it, it was old. I was a little older when she first was admitted to um, the mental hospital because of a nervous breakdown. And then she went shock therapy and all. And then she came home like a complete zombie. It's just so strange to yeah. witness that. Was it just you or did you have siblings? 
do you have I had so I had cousins that live with me for about I want to say like 10 years maybe eight years cousins that came to live with us um that she then was responsible for raising basically three kids all of a sudden and I think that probably had something to do with um what caused her strain on her her side or your dad's side on her side okay. yeah yeah, I think that that's my theory, but I don't know. I don't know if that was it. Like, she had never had, like, I have visions of my mom being perfectly stable and healthy and happy. Mm. And then they came and the things, the dynamic shifted. Mm. Well, and that's the thing is, it it's not necessarily like with mental illness, you're born and it's just like this from the start. There's often some trigger. And that's why mm -hmm. there's, especially with bipolar, it tends to present in yeah. some some adulthood period and it doesn't mean it doesn't happen in kids doesn't mean it ever happens yeah. even if you have the the predisposition but right. there's usually something that precipitates it and i imagine that that starts to be part of why you're doing the work that you're doing because it doesn't have to be precipitated yeah no i mean honestly i'm adopted and i used to go around saying ah oh, well thank goodness i was adopted i'm not gonna have bipolar disorder mm. until like you know a year and a half ago when i'm confronted with a major life event and i'm like oh my goodness like truly nobody is immune to this and yeah. i you know then i deal with depression as a 47 year old woman like what yeah. <laughs> didn't expect that yeah um so I, I want to ask, I mean, this is a little bit off from what you're just talking about, so I don't mean to, to break yeah. the flow, but you said it took four years to write your book. Yeah. And I'm curious about what, it, like, having written one, I know it doesn't happen overnight, so I'm not, yeah. I'm not critiquing the four years, and some <laughs> books need to take longer. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious for you why, why it took four years in your mind. What was the time on? It was hard. First of all, I was working full-time, a corporate job that was very demanding yeah. and required a lot of uh, hours, but it was painful because I had a, an amazing writing coach and she would guide me through writing the different pieces of the book. And every chapter was like unearthing, unearthing a, a buried treasure of emotion. Mm. So it was heavy. It was very heavy. I would, I would get into this cadence where every Saturday I would sit down and I would write and I literally, she would force me to relive the experience so that I could articulate that in writing to have my readers experience everything that was going on in this space and time that I was living it. Mm. So that took something because I was like, I have to remember what it's what the room smelled like. I had to remember what I was feeling. I had to remember what was going through my head, uh, you know, all of that. And so it was heavy. And there were times when I just needed a break. I couldn't do it. I just was just like, wow, this is so intense. Like, and I, I, I forgot about that for a reason, but here I am bringing it to the surface. So it's probably why. Was, I know your mother's passed away since, yeah. was she mm -hmm. alive when you had started the book? You know, she was not, I had always had the seed of an idea to write a book, but I always knew that her vulnerable nature was easily triggered. And for me to have released a book while she was alive about her would have probably caused an upset. Yeah. So when she passed away, I, I gained a sense of freedom to be able to write the book. Yeah. What about your dad? My dad too. My dad um, had passed away at the point when I published the book. Okay. So he yeah. knew you were working on it. I don't think he did. I think, um, I think he, 
knew I had always wanted to. Yeah. Um, but he, no, I, w- I don't think I was actually writing it when he was still alive. Yeah, I mean, that was part of what I was curious about. I mean, I would expect it's not a book that you're just like, oh, I'm going to sit down and bang out a couple of chapters and yeah. tell yeah. that story. And that, like, you're no. invariably, you're forced to live back through some some really heavy things or the book doesn't end up actually achieving what you would hope it yeah. to. Right. And um, it is a really hard thing to write about. Yes, it's your story, but it's your story that involves another human being and their life. And when that person's still around, how do you how do you meter that out? And some people will just put it out anyway, and other people yeah. will hold back, or they might change a story a bit. I mean, I know my second book, I have a couple of stories that involve there's like there's a story with my mother, there's a story with my sister, and I had both of them read it in draft form because I, I didn't feel like they weren't bad stories. I held back the juicy stuff, maybe. But they, you know, they were, they weren't yeah. bad stories or anything. Yeah. But still, I'm talking about them and their feelings and their behavior, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel right or safe just putting yeah. that out. Um, yeah. You know, and I knew my mother would like give copies to her friends, so I was nervous. <laughs> like, and they read it. Like, did you see what he said about you? Um, but it's, it's yeah. a tricky thing for sure. Mm-hmm. It is for sure. Yeah. I mean. Um... I mean, I write about my cousins in there. I write about my my aunt. I mean, I think it. I think in a lot of ways, though, it pleasantly surprised people like my aunt, who I don't know that she realized what a positive impact that she had on me mm. growing up. Like, I always found a, a safe haven in my godmother and my grandmother, mm. and like, I don't think she realized the profound impact. And the same thing with my youth minister, who gave me the first opportunity to talk to kids about. Um, understanding that you don't know what someone's dealing with. I mean, honestly, like I, I had dinner with him uh, like a month ago and I was like, you don't understand as a youth minister, like you really, you really played a vital role in a time for me that was really rough. So I think in a lot of ways, positives can come out of identifying people in your book too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, We'll have a tremendous amount of respect for not just the fact that you put it out and how much goes in of you goes into that, but that you lived because a lot of people might say, I can't do this. It's mm-hmm. too much. And, and you had a lot of time invested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to give in and give up, but there's this bigger mission and, and importance to putting it out. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. It's, and that's, it's and to be honest, to be honest with you, Brian, when I was stopped, when I was stuck, I kept saying to myself, What's my bigger vision? What's my bigger goal? My bigger vision and bigger bigger goal was to make a difference around mental health. Yeah. Right. So when you when you're on when you're trying to do something and you get stopped, you always have to get connected to what the bigger picture is. And it's not just the moment of pain that you're dealing with. It's like, I'm gonna change the world with this story. I love that. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Michelle, you you called it breaking into my life. Um which is, is a brilliant title. And I'm not the first to tell you that. I, I've listened to enough interviews with you where the hosts give you praise for the title. But is that kind of how it felt? like, Or, or yeah. when did it feel that way that you actually get to start living your life? Because your life is so strongly defined by your mother's experience before some point, or maybe, you know, obviously still to an extent it sits with you. But when did you... A, did you have the title before you started working on it? And B, when did you feel that you actually started to break into your life? 
You know, it's so funny. If you were to ask my coach, Lyndon, and who's an amazing coach, by the way, if anyone's looking to write a book, I can't, I can't say it enough. But if you were to ask Lyndon, when I sat down to write my book, the title of my book was perfect just the way you are. Mm. Because I really wanted to highlight that regardless of a mental illness, my mother was perfect just the way she was. And then as we started to finish the book, as I started to write the final chapter, my life started to unfold. I started to, um, that was the beginning stages of the separation from my husband. And so we both looked at the book and said, God, you know, you're really starting to break into your life, you know? And I was like, I really am. I'm starting to like, finally, like the whole cathartic experience of really diving into your life, your childhood over a four year period. And then you know, starting to recognize that you don't have your voice and where did you lose your voice along the way? It's like all of this culminated into, okay, this really is, I'm about to break into my life and live the best life that I can from this moment forward. And it's completely different from what you were living before. So it's it's sort of with the publishing of the book, maybe is that's, is that Mm -hmm. the point? Yeah. It made sense that that was the title because, um, yeah, because I, I definitely was committed to creating something totally different than what I knew to be true. Mm. And and then getting very present to the impact of all of those really crappy experiences and how that still had a hold on me was yeah. like, oh, no, I have to break free of this. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That, um, I have title envy. My, <laughs> my second book title is is not as as marketing brilliant it's true to what it is but anytime i see a title that's not um unnecessarily provocative like there's a general movement to put a swear word in your title or an asterisk to take the place because it's going to sell <laughs> yeah um, but yeah that to me is like when i saw the titles like that is so profound and spot on i love that um mm. so so you broke into your life tell me about with this background what you've learned by living that experience and i'm sure countless hours of thought and research, what is it that you're doing these days? Because you do have a really purposeful mission um, and you are having that, like what you're committed to, you are having that impact. I want to hear more about what you're doing. Yeah, sure. So it's interesting because, you know, I thought I was just the girl that had the story of what it was like to love someone with a mental illness until, like I mentioned earlier, I actually found myself dealing with depression and, Mm. you know, in my forties, like what? Like I never had this. That was something my mom had. So then I get this lens on mental illness that isn't only from the lens of the caregiver, but now I'm having to try to get my butt out of bed and navigate life and go to work and function in this space after being, you know, in a marriage and relationship for 19 years, my identity is kind of like, where is my identity? Like all of this is unfolding. So I have this caregiver lens. I have my own depression experience, but then I'm also working for a very big fortune 500 company. And I'm part of the leadership team that's developing, um, a mental health employee resource group. So we're, we're literally trying to remove stigma in the workplace. So I have these, I have these three, three, um, approach like experiences. So then I find myself being, um, being my position, being eliminated at my company. And I'm like, wow, well, this is interesting. I now have this three fold perspective on mental illness and the opportunity to do something with it. And so that's when I just said, that's it. This is what I'm up to. I'm going to go out and I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to be the one that goes first to talk about mental health. 
I'm going to lean into all the experience that I witnessed and caused around shifting corporate culture to be more inclusive of people with invisible disabilities. And I'm going to, even more importantly, um, what I'm really committed to is helping first responders um, really understand mental illness and shift their relationship so that they're caring for themselves and, and really taking care of um, their well-being as they go through the course of their careers. So, so that's really what I'm up to. I'm out to cause change and have there be more compassion and understanding <clears throat> about mental health. Um, there's a particular way you keep saying it, cause change, that's striking me as different from how a lot of people would phrase it. And I like it, it seems to encompass like starting something and creating mm -hmm. a ripple or a wave. Yeah. Um, in a way that's like, I want to change the blah, blah, blah. It's like, I want to cause this. I want to be the Absolutely. genesis of this movement out. I love that. Maybe it's, it was an unconscious decision, but you keep saying it and then it, it's striking me, like the choice of that word cause. Yeah, I mean, and I think it takes people to go first to to have people see how easy it is to be the change. So like an example of that is I have a meetup and I have a bunch of people who want to cause change in their company. So I'm like, how do I empower these people to be the change? So I'm causing their success, causing their ripple effect, you know? So, yeah. It ends up sure. being a, it's an exponential impact. Um. Your first responder focus mm -hmm. strikes me. I think I've probably said this on the show before, so apologies to any repeat listeners if you're sick of this example, but this is something that blew me away. In the wake of September 11th, there were a lot of rescue dogs that were searching through the, the debris trying to find survivors in those first few days. And what kept happening was you know, they were finding people who weren't still alive, and the dogs started to get depressed, and they stopped searching or they stop searching as effectively or actively. And so what the, the first responders working with the canine unit had to do was start like planting people in the rubble, like other firemen or volunteers to pretend to be survivors. So the dogs felt like it wasn't all death and destruction. There was a purpose. Um, and, you know, you can say what you want about animals. I'm vegan. So like, there's a whole argument that, you know, we can get into, but like, if you believe that people have an even deeper sense of feeling, morality, um, right and wrong, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you look how dogs are responding to this, doing something they've been trained to do without flinching, without question, and they're stopping dead in their tracks and can't do it anymore. Imagine yes. what it must be like for the people who see tragedy, who see pain, who see the wrongs we inflict on each other every single day. Um. There's yeah. no question to me just how much that burden must be on first responders. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you combine that with a culture where it's not, it's not accepted to admit that you're dealing with anything yeah. at all. And then you, you suppress that even more and yeah. then it impacts, it impacts your family. It impacts so much. I think, you know, we have such, we, we owe it to those people that are caring for us and rushing to our sides to help us to help them help themselves. Yeah. You're a lifesaver who's supposed to be able to just like do what you need to do, no matter what is going on, no matter how bad things are, you're the one who's going to get us through. How can you be struggling? Yeah. Yeah. I think well, it's a big know, part of PTSD in the military too. It's like, it's not, it has never been the mentality historically that 
you have a right to be upset by this. Yeah. They're the ones with the big Superman ass on yeah. their chests, yeah. right? They're, they're the ones that are bulletproof. Like they have this responsibility. They can't show weakness, but you know, like you said with, about the dogs, like they're human beings first and foremost. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I'm partnering with an incredible sergeant from a local police department who is, is a friggin' rock star. I just adore her. She, um, struggled with PTSD herself and she's um we're helping to bring resilience training to first responders and de-escalation training mm. ultimately shifting ment- you know the perspective of mental health for our first responders because they will have a deeper understanding about it so that's the goal de-escalation yeah in what context for them to be able to de-escalate in the community or, yeah or in the in the community right like if you can't identify the difference between someone in crisis versus someone who is uh, a criminal or someone who's out to do harm then how are you going to help effectively mm-hmm. you know that community person right they just might be in crisis yeah. and you're treating them like a criminal like there's a whole big um, education that has to happen around that and give them the confidence to be able to do that powerfully and not, you know, be like, I don't know what to do. Oh, um, uh, that's really, so it's not just trying to help them in their own situation, but help it's both. To bring the tone down for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like have them understand it. I mean, it, ta- it takes something to really educate people who were trained to be a different way, right? Like they're trained, they're not trained to be mental health professionals, right? Yeah. They're trained to protect the the general public. So it it really does require almost like a retraining and shifting their relationship to what is mental health? What what does that mean to you? You know, is it is it she's three sandwiches shy of a picnic? You know, is it that joke? Or is it, man, like she's really struggling. She's dealing with, you know, something and now I know what that could be like and I'll stop joking about it. Like yeah. silly, you know, like small things. Yeah. So first responders, law enforcement, um, I'm cheating because I, I know the answers, but tell me about the other spaces. And you did yeah. mention, you mentioned the corporate side too, yeah. and like it, with your meetup. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really interested in um, helping people be the change in their corporate environments. And it doesn't have to be corporate. It could just be a small business. It could be any business because at the end of the day, if we are helping people with physical disabilities, you know, with ramps and, you know, things that they need to be able to perform the best of their ability with their circumstance, why can't we do the same for people with mental illness? And, you know, there's things that companies can do. They could, you know, institute a peer support program where you have employees with lived experience that are there as a community to help one another. So there's a lot of cool things that can be done um, in the corporate space and in the business world. And I'm also sitting on the coalition for mental health within my town to create a uh, mental health awareness week in May Hmm. to really start opening and and having more candid conversations with the community about, you know, what is mental health and well-being look like? So. Wasn't it the the peer support? With shared lived experience, that's a really yeah. interesting concept. I thought you were going to say something like a meditation, a respite room. Nope. Which is like nope. those are all fine. Yeah. Um, but actually, yeah, we all we have lived through things, and I think in in a job setting, there's a fear sometimes to be vulnerable about that. 
yeah. either because it's crossing some HR line about what you can and can't talk about at work or because then people will think you're weak and you're not going to get the promotion and you really need this job or you're going to get fired or. Yes. Yeah. So the peer program I love is, be, you know, it, and it, you can't just go into a company and drop in a peer program. So, you know, you need a, you need an environment that is supportive of, of accepting everybody in the workspace, right? So there has to be like policies in place. There has to be a remit from the top in the company um, before you drop in a peer program. But if you think about it, if you have employees who have navigated a mental illness and have come out the other side, they truly represent hope for another employee who might be navigating it for the first time on their own. And that's the greatest thing that you can do for your own people is cr is create a support community <clears throat> where they don't feel isolated and alone and they can see, oh man, they, they did it. They're okay. I can do it too. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and the last group, this one hit home for mm -hmm. me because this is mm -hmm. when you talk about causing the change and that sort of ripple effect or exponential effect. This one is where we're sort of trying to ensure that the problem isn't a, a hidden stigma riddled problem going mm -hmm. forward. Yeah. So <clears throat> are you talking about my children's program? I am. <laughs> it's such a, it's so basic, right? We have, um, we have a children's program. It's a, it's a, I'm so happy about it because it's been running now for years, but it, what it evolved into is actually a mental health wellness fair and where we actually teach children empathy, compassion, um, understanding their feelings and their emotions and really giving them tools in their toolbox to, to deal with circumstances that are going to show up in their life. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, Social media is a great example, uh, you know, of feeling inadequate and and really, um, you know, the power of uh, empathy and compassion and really standing up for one another and raising your hand if you feel off or you recognize that your friend feels off and really, you know, creating a healthy relationship to brain health at yeah. the get go. Like, let's live in a world in the future where there is no stigma, where kids openly talk about their brain as just like they would their leg. You know, yeah, there's a, a video on your website um, that has some clips from some of the children's programs and they're great. Like the kids are so engaged in it. Totally. Which I loved seeing is like, no, this is a real thing. And there's yeah. an audience that wants to talk about this and it doesn't have to be awkward. It can be really empowering for them. They really seem to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. The so great. The most amazing part of that video from that program is that we trained the kids to teach their peers. Oh, nice. So it was absent yeah. of the adults, you know, dictating this is how you should be. Da, da, da. It was kids taking content, shaping it to reach their peers and then having them successfully reach their that's peers. Awesome. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Um, Michelle, this is this is really it's given me hope. And I know it's like it's small steps and this is a, a pretty far reaching wide problem. Yeah. Um, but if we don't have steps like this, we'll never do anything about it. Yeah. So I'm I'm very thankful for the work that you're doing. Where can people see more of what you're up to, maybe engage with you? Um, obviously get your book and and see mm -hmm. what you're putting out there. For sure. I have a website. It's Michelle with two L's, E Dickinson um dot com. You can find me there. 
Um, and you can learn about my children's program. I really am committed to seeing that program spread anywhere. I mean, it's been going in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, but like, I want to see it go far and wide. Like Connecticut. Um, Why not? Why not? And, um, and then my, um, I'm happy to have people join my meetup or my WhatsApp community on being empowered to cause change in their workplace. I, I would love to have you part of that. I have right now, I have um, Lululemon, I have Amazon, and I have um, an educator um, within that group. And we're, we're starting our conversation to really um, create strategies to reach out to leaders to cause change in their companies. And then um, first responders, I'm so committed to working with my my sergeant partner to really, you know, go one one police department at a time and have yeah. that conversation. How do we help your how do we help your officers be better, be stronger? That's awesome. I love that. Um, I will link to all of those things in the show notes. Um, I was excited to hear WhatsApp. I haven't heard anyone mention, but it's always this Facebook group or something. Yeah. And, no, um, it's a totally different kind of engagement. It's more like totally. direct and it's like a, a big group text. It really is. Yeah. And it's great. And, you know, you, you can really get to know each other that way, too. Yeah. Um, awesome. Michelle, thank you for reaching out in the first place and, and for giving so much of yourself today. I know it's um, it can be really hard to relive these stories in these moments. And you face that head on because there's such a purpose to it and such a need. Um, so the world is better for that. And I did have one thing I wanted to ask you before. So I break the flow of closing things out. Cause I want to ask you this uh-huh. when you're writing the book, did you go through the machinations of what if no one buys it? What if I sell millions of copies and how many, did you ever get the sense of if nobody buys it, I don't care. It's still like for, because you obviously had a self growth process Yeah. getting on the other side of it. So did you feel like even if not a single copy is sold, I'm still glad I did this? I knew it would touch someone. I knew it would touch someone. And I always said if it touched one person, then that would have been all all that I could have ever hoped for because yeah. it was a labor of love. Come on. But I think the thing that really resonated for me was when a 15-year-old girl who lived with a bipolar mom read mm-hmm. my book and reached out to me and said, your story just gave me hope that I'm going to yeah. be okay. Yeah. I mean, that's totally her story. Totally. I was just like this. That was the reason why I wrote the book. I don't need to sell millions of copies. Yeah. <laughs> I guess what I'm asking is if that someone was just you. Yeah. Was that okay? Were you good, like, were yeah. you good enough with yourself to feel like I deserve me doing this? Yeah, totally. I know totally. you had a bigger purpose and intention and yeah, and that's awesome. No. It's, it's a self-love question, really. Totally. I knew um, that the whole journey of four years of unearthing and healing through each chapter of writing was worth it. Yeah, that's awesome. The only negative from that thinking is if it becomes an excuse for not going the last step and actually publishing it and getting it so that those 15 year old moments, you know, that those can still yeah. happen. Yeah. Uh, that's the only time I'm not okay with self-love. Otherwise it, it is important. Like we do put a lot of ourselves into this work okay. and if you don't value yourself, then it can be really hard to get through those tougher moments because you don't yeah. even see the benefit for you. It's very true. Very true. Okay. We will close out on that note. Thank you so much for the honesty and the power of what you shared. And um, yeah, I mean, just being open with yourself to relive something you could have just said, no, that's behind me now. Um, But it was too important 
to make that decision. So thank you for that. Are you ready to help me close out the show? I am. All right. Today is a new day. Go out and do it with compassion for yourself and others. Awesome. Thank you very much, Michelle. You're welcome. How great is Michelle? It was such a uh, honest journey in her story, the highs and the lows, obviously the backstory with her mother, but then, you know, with her divorce and what happened in her career and the place that that left her. And I think a great reminder, not just around the mental health side, but that reminder that just because what we've known has come apart or is ending doesn't mean we can't find a different path ahead. You know, it's that same story of coming up to a wall and recognizing you don't have to turn back. You don't have to try to bust through it or climb over it or scream at it and pound it. There might be a door, you know, just look to the side, look around and see maybe that is the path that actually matters so much more to you. Um, Definitely check Michelle out. I'm going to link to everything in the show notes, the TEDx, the book, everything. Um, So you do want to dig in deeper with that. And I would remind people that the Do A Day Masterclass is still available. You can still get in for the special price of $37 before it returns to its regularly scheduled programming price of $8.97. You just go to brianfeldtruck.com, click on courses, and you'll see the Do A Day Masterclass there. And with that, I will let you guys go so you can go check out Michelle's stuff. You can check out the course. Of course, if you aren't subscribed to the show, great opportunity to do that. And I will see you back here next time. It's one of the benefits of being subscribed is it just happens. You just get the next episode and you don't miss anything. So make sure you're subscribed to the show and we'll come back for the next episode in Do A Day. Thanks, everyone. Go out and do it.